Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuestTV.tv, where we have an open discussion on our Bible, biblical topics, uh, questions uh, that we take in from the audience each week. And we invite you to participate in the discussion uh, with your comments and questions. And if you're joining us from the BibleQuest.tv app, please open the Q&A window to send in your questions. Um, our panelists today are Scott from Gettysburg, PA. Hi, Scott. Hello, everybody. Hi, Drew. Hi, good to see you. Also from Gettysburg is Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Drew. Thanks so much for uh, hosting us today. Um, we're also broadcasting live from my Facebook page today, as we do. Um, so if you're joining us through Facebook, please feel free to leave your comments and questions in the comments below. Uh, we'll try to get to as many of those as we can. We got a lot of good participation last week. and want to thank everybody who tuned in then. But if you're joining us for the first time, please feel free to join the discussion with your questions and comments just by leaving those in the comments below. And I'm Drew DeGrotta, your host from Honesdale, Pennsylvania. And once again, welcome everybody to our show today. Uh, Stephen, before we get into questions, though, why don't you, you were going to, Say something about uh, some, you're going to offer a prayer for those people in Texas. Yeah, absolutely. I think, well, Scott had brought that up um, with a specific prayer request. Scott, can you share that with us again? Yeah, Elizabeth Fife uh, wrote her mother is in a nursing home there and the water is approaching it and it could become flooded. Uh, her sister, who is in the area, cannot get to it because of the rising waters. And I'm sure that's just one of many, many situations. If you think of pregnant mothers who are about to deliver people, you know, a lot of different situations. But if we could pray specifically for Elizabeth's mother there and just in general for the people there in Houston. Absolutely. Let's have a prayer right now for them. Our good Father in heaven, you are Lord of heaven and earth and God over the weather and of all things. And Father, we ask. Uh, that your favor and your blessing be upon the people in Houston right now who are suffering with the rising waters and the damage from the hurricane. Uh, Father, I pray specifically that you'd be with uh, Elizabeth Fife's mother and, and the others there in her facility, that they might be able to uh, stay there and not need to evacuate. Um, Father, may you please be with them especially. Lord, you know of all those who are in need of help and all those who are risking their lives to, to help. We pray your blessings on all involved right now and that you would work through this situation um, and that you might be ultimately glorified. Uh, we pray this prayer through the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So uh, thank you, Stephen. So we do have, uh, like you said, some questions today. And uh, let me just stop the sharing so that people can see who's going to be responding to these questions. Um, so what's our questions? What's the first one we're going to address today, Steve? Uh, well, the first one we're going to look at has to do with a question with the calling of the disciples. And it's specifically a question having to do is, is there a discrepancy with the calling of the disciples between Matthew 4.18 and John one thirty five. So let's look at the text together. Matthew uh, chapter 4, we'll begin. With the calling of the first disciples. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse uh, 18. 
and says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So this is, at least in Matthew's gospel, I think the first encounter recorded of Jesus calling uh, Peter and Andrew, uh, brothers, fishermen there. And if you turn over to the book of John, chapter 1, we'll look at verse 35 and the context there. John chapter 1. I've got it. So John 1, 35, again on the morrow, John was standing, this is John the Baptist, and two of his disciples. And he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said, What seek ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted teacher, where do you abide? And he said to them, Come, and you shall see. They came therefore and saw where he abode, and they abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two that heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He finds first his own brother Simon and said unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted Christ. And he brought him unto Jesus. Jesus looked upon him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is by interpretation, Peter. So before you give the solution there, Stephen, just clarifying what the concern is. In John, it looks like uh, they went and sought him first and, in, and started the initial interaction. Whereas in Matthew's account, it looks as if Jesus is going by, sees them in a boat, and he starts it and says, come on, follow me. So from, just from the surface, it looks like a contradiction. Yeah, and I remember growing up uh, and kind of, I just, you're used to hearing the story of Jesus calling the first disciples. He comes to them on the Sea of Galilee. They're there on, on the shore or, you know, they're in their boats. And so I always think like, well, here's this random guy, Jesus, who comes up and then they just leave their nets and follow him, you know. Uh, but I think John's gospel actually really helps us to see the fuller picture. Yeah. And what happens is just chronologically, John 1 would be before Matthew 4 and the other accounts in, in Mark and Luke. And we find out that some of these men had already been disciples of John the Baptist. And John points to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God. And so that at that point, the disciples who have been hearing John speak about the one who's going to come after me, then begin to follow Jesus. And Andrew, one of them, goes and gets his brother Peter. So it's going to be a bit later in time. They've already heard John identify who Jesus is, that Jesus comes up to them while they're fishing and says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they make the, the sacrifice of leaving their work, leaving their family and going to be devoted to Jesus and in and, and his work. So John 1 and Matthew 4 are not a con contradiction, but they actually give us a fuller picture of how that would have been kind of chronologically for the disciples. Yeah, let me just add to that. You you said it. I just wanted to clarify it there in John 1. When John identifies him and those other two disciples started to seek him, uh, started to follow him, sometimes we may think, well, that meant they started to follow him spiritually and, and his message. 
when really they were just saying, well, let's go check him out, right? And that's, that's what it could, because Jesus says, he turns to them and says, why are you seeking me? And they said, well, we just want, we want to see where you're staying. So they wanted to get to know him more. They weren't beginning their work as his disciples. So that was like the initial, right, Scott? Well, let's clarify the difference between the word disciple and apostle. A disciple means a what? A follower, a, belie- a student. A yeah. And an apostle is someone that is chosen to be a messenger. Commissioned. Yeah. So in Matthew, they won't become apostles until Matthew chapter 10. Uh, that's where they'll get commissioned. And from, it, Luke puts it this way. He, from among the disciples, he chose 12 to be apostles. So both of these events that uh, Stephen was talking about here and we read in the text, both of those are before they're chosen and called and assigned to be apostles uh, in in the fullest sense. But you've kind of got three stages. In John 1, this is where Andrew, who is already a disciple of John, but he's a fisherman who is a disciple uh, of John. Um, And he is... Uh, standing there, and they see John the Baptist, who they've been listening to preach. Um, you know, there, there's people that hear us preach, right? Sunday, we're probably all going to preach, and people are going to listen to us. Does that mean that they're going to leave their mechanic job or their carpenter job or, or, or you know, whatever it is, and just follow and go with us? No. Uh, but here in, in John, uh, when they heard him speak, and John said, this is, this, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Then they followed him. They stayed with him that night. And he goes and gets Peter. And he says, we found the Messiah. Except Peter's not Peter at this point. Brings Peter and Jesus gives him the name. Uh, then I think Stephen is right. After this, so they're, they're, I think you see belief in Jesus here. And, and there's a, a certain level of, of adherence and allegiance already. Then you have as Stephen described at another point, Jesus assigns them to be fishers of men and they leave their nets. And there's more detail on that actually in the gospel of Luke, where it is after they have caught the fish. Mm. Listen to the language earlier on, Luke 5, 1. Now it came to pass while the multitude pressed upon him and heard the word that he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. He saw two boats standing by the lake. Fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He entered one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from land. He sat down and taught the multitudes out of the boat. When he left speaking, he said to Simon, you know, put out the nets. And Simon says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, we'll let down the nets. They do, and then they get the huge amount of fish. And then Peter says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And then Jesus calls them and the other ones, and he says, uh, you're going to be fishers of men. Um, you shall catch men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left all and followed him. Yeah. So notice, go ahead. Well, that's just helpful to see that in Luke, you've also got that miracle they just experienced. Right. So these aren't just gullible men, you know, like the first guy who comes along and says, follow me. They're like, okay. You know, <laughs> they, they've had John's confirmation to say, here's the lamb of God. And they've just seen the miracle of the fish. And now he says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they're like, all right, we're, we're all in. And notice the, the way that Simon speaks to Jesus before the miracle. 
master. So this is before he said, follow me, you'll catch men, before uh, they've left all. And Jesus says, put out your nets. And he says, master, we fished all night and didn't catch anything. But if you tell us to, we will. So there's already recognition of who he is. Well, where does this go back to? Well, it goes back to John chapter 1. When Andrew heard from John the Baptist, this, this is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So that's, there was that introduction. Then there's the incident here, I'll make you fishers men. And later, the specifically saying, you guys are going to be the apostles, and he sends them out. Scott, just, go ahead. I'm sorry. Wouldn't, wouldn't you say that many times when people say there's a contradiction or a discrepancy between the, the, the gospel accounts, it's because they're not seeing all of the information that some is giving more than others, and they just take it at face value. Well, he doesn't say that, therefore, is a contradiction. Yeah, if, if the three of us uh, were at an event last week, um, and, well, say, say we were all up at Joe Work's camp, and uh, then we're telling about it later, one of us sees the bear. The other says, I didn't see a bear. <laughs> you know, one says, I saw a bear. Contradiction. Well, we didn't all see the bear. Uh, one of us says, I remember this happening. Another says, give some other details. You, you can put all the details together and get a picture of what's going on, but not everybody's going to get the same details. Yeah, that's helpful. That's good. All right, so I think that, that clarifies that question. Pretty good. Let me, let me add one thing just real quick on this, and it's the nature of John as being, among other things, kind of a supplemental gospel. John is writing later and at a time where people are already familiar with a lot of the gospel event, of events of the ministry of Christ. And you can see that, for example, in talking about when John is thrown into prison. The, uh, it simply says this in chapter 3. John was baptizing in Anon near to Sam because there was much water there. Then the John 3, 24 says, John was not yet cast into prison. Well, if this is the first time you're hearing about it, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, why would he get thrown into prison? He's writing to people who already know about John being cast into prison. And he's giving some details that aren't in the other ones. Yeah, that's helpful. Great. Okay, so there was a second question that we wanted to address that came up from Randy, and this refers to the statement in Luke 21, verse 24, where it talks about the time of the Gentiles, when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. What is that talking about? Well, why don't you give some background on that first, Scott? Uh, Stephen or Drew? <laughs> I didn't that do that be on purpose time. because I, I was trying to throw the it over. Time the, the Gentiles would be fulfilled. Uh, exactly what all is going is related to that. Uh, I don't have much more to give than what's in the text. Yeah, I, I'm not uh, completely sure on that either, Scott. Um, the the question the verse in question is Luke 21. 24. And uh, in the context, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's saying that, you know, it, it would be better to not be pregnant in those days. Uh, uh, you hope that it doesn't happen at that time. And verse 24, Jesus said, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Uh, those are the words of Jesus. And, and like, 
several times with the words of Jesus. There's things that we can be sure about, and there's some things that are hard to understand um, with our from our present perspective. And uh, I'm not completely sure what Jesus is referring to in that last phrase either. The premillennialists made a big deal out of the events of 1940s, which brought Jews back into Jerusalem. Uh, and, you know, there, there's a change there, obviously. There's a change in the politics and in, in who's in the city and, and a lot of that. However, um, the people who made a big deal about that event in their premillennial expectations uh, a lot of them also said that within 40 years of that point, that then the, the other aspects of their preliminary theory were going to take place, as in a rapture, and then a seven years period in an Antichrist, and a temple being rebuilt, and a battle, all these different things. And so uh, I've got a book in my office, 188 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come by 1988, because uh, that was... 40 years afterwards. Uh, there was another book, 101 Reasons Why Jesus Will Come by 1988. Um, I've got one reason why both of those books were wrong. It's not 18, 1988 anymore and he didn't come then. Uh, and so uh, another thing to keep in mind is that Jesus said, um, as far as his coming, said, it'll be like a thief in the night. Uh, and so some assumptions based on this concept from premillennialists have been proven mistaken. But what all God has in mind with his dealings and timings, uh, like G Jesus said, as far as coming, neither the father nor neither the son nor the angels knew, but only the father. Yeah. And this is obvious. We don't have all the answers to everything that's in the scripture. Right. But we don't claim to at all. There is a reference to a fullness of time in regards to Jesus, isn't there? Yeah, in Ephesians 1. Isn't that, is, in my opinion, I thought, always I thought that meant like at the right time. Right? Certainly. Fullness of time means it's it's now time to take care of it or night time to do it. Yeah, prophetically and in God's plan and in his right. arrangements and it's time. And then, because uh, Paul mentioned, I think, yeah, Paul mentions in Romans 11 about the, uh, the hardening of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Um, could it be that it's talking about at the right time when the Gentiles now are accepted into the kingdom of God? Because prior to Christ, they were not accepted. So I'm just throwing out a guess that maybe it's referring to at the right time when the Gentiles come in. I would love to see, uh, of course, there, there are Jews uh, that uh, accept that Jesus is the Christ and have committed their lives following him. And there will continue to be that. I would love to see that occur on a broader scale. I'm not talking about a universal scale. There's some, again, they're premillennials that believe that when Jesus comes back, every single uh, child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is going to instantly become a believer and, and be saved at that point. That's not what I'm talking about. But I, I'd love to see if, if there is going to be a time when just there will be a broader reception. Uh, and maybe that's the case. We'll see. Yeah. Well, I wasn't. I wasn't referring to that. Okay. Over that, I was just talking about that. At, there was a time when the Gentiles were now acceptable, and that happened. Yes. Christ. That's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Jesus may be referring to something that has already been fulfilled, and he might 
perhaps be referring to something that has not yet been fulfilled. Either way, we know our responsibility to take the gospel to all nations. That's, and that's right. really where we ought to be focused. That's the bottom line. That's right. That's, that's right. the bottom line. Any other thoughts on that before going further? So uh, go ahead, uh, Stephen. What was the third question we were going to look at that came in? So the third, the third question was actually a, uh, a question in response to what we were talking about uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. And Natalie asked um, – in response to that, does that mean that in the church-wide Bible study on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, women shouldn't speak? So this is a question having to do with the uh, instruction of Paul given in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So let's open our Bibles there and read the text. 1 Corinthians 14. Repeat that again. I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And uh, we'll pick up in verse 33. It says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So it says a couple times in this passage that a woman, women should not speak in the churches or in church. And one of the important things to understand about that word, uh, the Greek word ekklesia, it's just, for them, it wouldn't have been a religious word. It was just the common word for an assembly. And here it says that that word can be used in, in different ways. Um, here it's used, I think, in a, the specific sense of when God's people are gathered together in a particular place. It's referring to that event. Um, it's not women should keep silent when they become part of the universal church uh, when they're baptized into Christ, they're not supposed to be silent for the rest of their walk as a, a Christian. And it's not talking about just any time that a woman is, is with other believers that are part of that local assembly, but it's referring to the specific time uh, that believers are gathered together uh, for a specific purpose to take the Lord's Supper and other things. And really in 1 Corinthians 14, that's the context is he's talking specifically about spiritual gifts and their use in the assembly. But he does say specifically that there's a couple different groups that are to remain silent in church. Earlier in the chapter, he talked about uh, prophets um, or people speaking in tongues that didn't have an interpreter uh, should keep silent. Prophets should only speak one at a time. If, if another revelation is made, then they need to keep silent. And the women are told that they are to uh, keep silent in, in the churches. Scott, do you have a comment there? Uh, yeah, let's go just a little bit more detail about what the word church does and doesn't mean here. Because, uh, and, and by the way, Paul states this very emphatically. Um, sometimes there's a tendency to say, well, maybe there was something going on at Corinth. Maybe there was just some confusion. Maybe this was a, it, the text went on to say, what was it from you that the word of God went forth? Came it unto you alone. If any man thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him take knowledge that the things that I write unto you, they are the commandment of the Lord. Yeah. You need to pay attention to this passage. And it said, as in all the churches of the saints, let the women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted them to speak. Um, and again, it is shameful for a woman to speak in the church. So first, let's clarify what the word church doesn't mean. 
sometimes we think that the word church means church building. It's like, how do you get there? Well, you go down past Dairy Queen, you turn left, and then you turn right at the church. That's not what the word church means in the New Testament. Um, in fact, at the end of this letter, um, well, excuse me, uh, this is written from Ephesus to Corinth, but not long after this, Paul will get to Corinth, and he'll write Romans. And when he writes Romans, he sends a greeting at the end of Romans from Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church. So the church there in Corinth met at Gaius's house. So we'll begin with the idea. He's not talking about women can't, can't speak in a church building, but they can speak outside of a church building because where they were not to speak was in Gaius's house when it was the church. And so as Stephen already indicated, there's different ways the word church is used. We're going to look just real quickly at church universal, church local, and church assembled. Give me one verse that talks very clearly about the church universal. Ephesians chapter 5 is Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's men, women, you know, all over the world that are serving Christ. You said, I will build my church. I'll build my people. Obviously, Paul is not saying women that belong to Christ can never speak. In fact, it says here, ask her husband. Uh, so it's not the church universal. All right. Now the church local. What would be a verse that would show the church local? An example of a local church. Galatians right. 1 is addressed to the churches of Galatia. Right. To the churches of Galatia. Uh, the churches of Galatia are not the church at Philippi. They're the churches of Galatia. Then in the letter of 1 Corinthians, we have several times where the word church is used not of the church universal and not just of a, people in a local church, but people in a local church when they are come together in their assembly. And if you just stop thinking about it and think of some of those, where in Corinthians, go ahead, Stephen. I just want to take a, a brief moment to acknowledge that we've got a couple other questions that have come in, uh, one on the Facebook page and one uh, via the Q&A box here in the Zoom app. We're going to get to those as soon as we can. I just want to thank you for your questions. Carry on, Scott. All right, so we'll make this a little quicker and get to those. First Corinthians chapter 11. Paul, talking about the Lord's Supper, says, verse 18, first of all, when you, the church of Corinth, come together in the church, what have you not houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God? And so he talks about when you come together, wait for one another. Uh, first Corinthians 14, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding than might instruct others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, Paul says, I speak in tongues more than any of you, but he didn't want to be doing that in the church unless there was an interpreter. Then in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 14, he said, if the whole church be assembled together, uh, King James also has in one place and all speak, etc. And so now there's some rules governing that situation. And as you mentioned, you weren't to have people speaking in tongues unless it's interpreted, not two people speaking at the same time, not two prophets prophesying at the same time. The other can be silent while he does that. 
And so this tongue speaker, be silent because there's no interpreter. That prophet, be silent because he received a revelation. And then he, while on the related thing, he says, and as in all the churches of the saints, let the women keep silence in the church. So it's this whole church come together, which now coming back to the question, does that mean that in a church-wide Bible study, uh, if it is church-wide Bible study, I think the women should remain silent. Now, I suspect what she's thinking about is like when we have, when we're divided up into Bible classes. Uh, at Gettysburg, we'll have some adults in this room studying, uh, studying one book, and we'll have some adults in another room studying something else. The young adults will be in another room studying something else, and other Christians are teaching classes of young people here and there. Is that the whole church come together in one place? No, that's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and we would not take the Lord's Supper in that condition either, would we? If I proposed taking the Lord's Supper while we're divided up in classes like that, we'd say, no, we should come together for that in the assembly. And that's where we, but one thing I would caution against is this. We use the phrase Bible class which are very valuable, but it's not a phrase found in scripture. But I've seen a tendency of people to take an assembly and say, we're going to call this a class and then everybody can speak. Well, that's using a terminology that's not really found in scripture to redefine something. And if Paul was there and he said, why, why is this going on? He said, oh, well, we said it's a class. Paul would say, what do you mean? It wasn't even a word that he used. Now, did Paul have studies with Lydia? Sure. You know, did, uh, did Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside and explain to him? Sure. So there should be, you know, communication and Bible discussion and stuff. But in the assembly, that's where, in, in the whole assembly, uh, women should keep silent, 1 Corinthians 14. Yeah. So the, the, I guess to sum up what you're saying, Scott, uh, is to Natalie's question, if it is a church-wide Bible study, in other words, in the language of First Corinthians, if the whole church has come together in one place, then First Corinthians 14 about the women would apply and the women should keep silent in that assembly. But if you have different Christians gathered together and they're separated into uh groups or whatever, uh, we wouldn't say that that's the whole church gathered together in the same meeting. You got different subjects, different speakers, things like that. Monday, uh, uh, yesterday, Stephen, you and I and uh, several others, when women and men both, were at a meetup Bible study up at Harrisburg, right? And that there were members, Christians there, and we were studying, but we weren't, we weren't uh, assembly of the church. You weren't assembly. So we were talking and discussing, and as as Paul would have done with Lydia. Yeah, we've got two uh, questions that have come in that are relevant to this. The first is from Randy via the Zoom app, and he says, "I've I've been in a discussion with someone who believes only the Jews are saints. So is this verse talking about churches of the saints? Is Paul referring only to the Jews? I've never heard that." perspective given before do either of you have any thoughts on that i yeah i've, I've heard that recently but the, the issue stems from the fact that in the first year or two there were only jewish christians so, right and 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 even in this book ever. in first corinthians in first corinthians 1 and verse 2 he says to the church of god that is important to those sanctified in christ jesus called to be saints 
together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. It seems to me inescapable from that verse. We understand that the church at Corinth is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Oh, and the word saints is applied to all of them. That, and that's, that, that was written many years after when Gentiles were coming into the kingdom. And yeah, so it would have been. The word saints was not strictly reserved just for Jewish Christians. It revert, refers to anyone who has been saved, who the Lord considers them holy, separate from the world. That's what the word saint means. I'm guessing that what some are doing is saying this part of that expression is the Jews, the saints, and the other part is the other ones. I don't think that's correct, but like, listen to it from Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, through the will of God, to the saints, and this is, and the faithful in Christ Jesus. So somebody may be thinking, oh, the saints, that's the Jewish Christians, and the faithful in Christ Jesus, that would be the others. No. Uh, but that doesn't make sense. If you look through, for example, go to Ephesians 5, fornication, I'm reading verse 3, fornication and all uncleanness, covetousness, let it not even be named among you as become a saints, saints. nor foolish talking or foolish jesting, which are not befitting, but rather giving thanks. For this, you know, of surety that no fornicator or unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. He's not just talking to the uh, Jews there. He's talking to the Gentiles. In fact, that section started off with this, uh, there was a reference to Gentiles up in chapter four as this section began, if I remember correctly, I remember wrong. Um, say, say that again, Maybe Scott. I, remember wrong. I was thinking that the word Gentile is actually used somewhere in four through five, but I'm not seeing it right now. Uh, if Gentiles is used in chapter two, um, where he talks about you Gentiles uh, called the uncircumcision, um, yeah, and so this, but this would apply both both Jews and Gentiles. They're both saints. Okay, yeah. In two eleven, he makes the distinction. There. Oh yeah, yeah. Here we go. Ephesians four seventeen. This I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, but now walk this way. And then he says, five three. You know, don't let these sins be named upon you as become of saints. So the answer to your question, Randy, is no. Paul is not only referring to the Jews. Very good. You had a couple others uh, comments coming in, uh, Stephen? Yeah, a couple others. Uh, Emma asked, uh, what if your church is nine people? You get together for dinner and talk about the Bible. Um, sounds silly, but we really do have so many questions about this. Um, seems to me there has to be some ability for the group to make decisions that there isn't an assembly. Um, if you don't have time to answer my question, that's totally okay. You can message your thoughts later if that helps. I know it's probably a can of worms. Scott, you hit, you hit on that. It's the purpose of the assembling. What is it you're coming together for? And I, I've been in uh, several situations where, like when we were starting to work in Philadelphia, you start off very small. We're starting to work in Harrisburg. You start off very small. Uh, Stephen, if you and Brienne went to, I don't know, Madagascar to start work, and your first Sunday there, uh, it's who? It's you and Brienne. Um, well, while, <laughs> and while you're doing the things that you would do, as a church where you've only got two people, then 
I think you should be doing the speaking there. Now, at lunchtime, it's still the same two people. It's you and, and Brianne. Um, and, you know, uh, there's going to be some, there's spiritual discussion in your home other than that's one of the things about people that serve the Lord. They don't just talk about the Lord on Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night. And Hopefully. That's as um, so yeah, so it, it gets a little uh, uh, challenging sometimes. But I tell you what, I think it's important to keep in mind some of the distinctions and value that. Otherwise, we can set precedents when we're four or six or nine people that then turn into ignoring this once we're 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 people. Yeah. Luke Moyer also comments on this subject. Uh, the whole church gathered together is still defined by purpose as a church. The same individuals can gather as a whole and apart for another purpose and not be regulated by rules of assembly. Otherwise, the same individuals couldn't do anything together unless they adhere to regulations of the worship for food, for movies, for disaster relief, etc. Um, so I think that... Uh, Good points on both sides of this. We need to adhere to the the directions given by Paul as a commandment of the Lord in First Corinthians 14 when the whole church is gathered together. But there are considerations uh, in small group settings uh, for understanding the purpose of the assembly. If you're getting together for pizza and you talk about you know what you discussed in Bible class that morning, it's a different purpose of assembly. Here in, in a small group and in a home and stuff, is, notice it also with the issue of eating. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said, you know, they turned the Lord's Supper into a meal. He said, you've got houses to eat and drink in, you know. And, and he says, when you come together, you know, you take the Lord's Supper in memory of him. But if you're hungry, you eat at home. Well, where did Gaius and his wife eat? In their home. Yeah, in the same place that they just had the Lord suffer with everybody else. But when they were gathered, when the saints came over and they were assembled as a church, that was a different setting. Different purpose. When people went back to their homes and ate, and Mr. and Mrs. Gaius sat down. And if they invited Stephen and Brianne to stay after dinner one time, that would also be different as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we got a few more minutes today. We had another question come in from Joy. Um, anything else on that question before I move to this one? Uh, Joy asks, John 3, 5 states that unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The water referred to in this verse, is it water baptism or something else? My Bible commentary thinks it is not referring to baptism. Rather, it thinks it is a, quote, spiritual birth with the background of water referring to Ezekiel 36 verses 25 to 27, where God promises, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. And then she asks, does this statement hold any water? And then uh, so, uh, I like the pun there. I there. Um, that's a really good question, Joy. Um, in John chapter three, let's read that text once more together. Uh, we want to be careful to look at the text for, our answers in John chapter three, Nicodemus has come to Jesus by night and uh, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Verse three, Jesus answered him. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So it's helpful for us to think about the context of this passage, and then we can look at Ezekiel 36 for a moment. That's a good connection to make. In John chapter 3, if you look just a little bit later in the chapter, we see what was happening in those days. Of course, John the Baptist had been practicing water baptism, uh, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Um, If you look later there in John chapter 3 and verse 22, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Selim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Uh, Scott made reference to that a minute ago. And also in chapter four of John verse one, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So one thing I think is helpful And answering this question is in the immediate context of John 3 and the very beginning of John 4, we have John the Baptist practicing water baptism. And we know it's immersion in water here because it says he was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Why? A lot of water. There's a lot of water there. If it was sprinkling, you wouldn't need a lot of water. But it's immersion in water. And so Jesus is going to be, I think, connect here, being born of water and spirit Um, the water in the context of John 3 is water baptism. I think that's correct. Scott? And and when we look at the phrase, so there we saw in the context of the chapter in the beginning of the next one, we see baptism. Also, just looking at the phrase born again, that's an important phrase. And it doesn't show up that many times in the Bible, but it's significant. Uh, This is the one time where Jesus uses the phrase born again. And when Nicodemus wants to know, what does that mean? How would you do that? That's how when Jesus explains, you have to be born of water and of the spirit. It's very helpful, therefore, to look at other passages that talk about being born again and compare them to this one. For example, let's look at Titus chapter three. And uh, A little memory trick here. If you want to remember these two passages together, it's pretty easy because one is John 3, 5. The other is Titus 3, 5. 3, 5. There you go. So in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, it says this. We've been saved, verse uh, verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love toward man appeared, not by works done in righteousness, which we did ourselves, but according to his mercy, he saved us through, what are the two things it mentions? The washing washing of regeneration. What is regeneration? New life, rebirth. Yeah. Yeah, new birth. The washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Holy Spirit. Spirit. So you've got here regeneration. Jesus says you have to be born again. He says how? And Jesus talks about water and the Spirit. And Paul and Titus, there's that we're saved through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And then there's another text in Romans 6. 
it doesn't use the phrase regenerate or born again, but it uses the phrase put the old man to death and rise to walk in newness of life. Guess what that is? What verse is that in, Scott? Romans 6. Which, which verse? Uh, it's starting in verse 1. Uh, what should we say then? Of course, in Romans, Paul's been talking about how we're saved by grace. And this is a chapter where he stops and says, now, being saved by grace doesn't mean that you can just keep sinning. What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No. Verse 3, are you ignorant that all we who were all we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? Death. Death. We were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death. Drop down to verse uh, 6. Our old man was crucified with him. So we put the old man to death. You crucify the old man. What do you do with the corpse? You bury it. You bury it. So you put the old man to death, uh, deny self, take up your cross daily, put that old self to death, follow him. But you got to bury that old man. Verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with him through baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might also walk in what kind of life? Newness of life. Of life. So here was our life before. That one's over. And now here is a new life. You're a babe in Christ. You're clean. You're, and, and, and so that's born again. So we have three passages actually tying water with being born again or the old man buried in, in, in the new life and the regeneration. That's very helpful. I do want to at least acknowledge the connection to Ezekiel 36 that uh, Joy's Bible pointed out. In, in Ezekiel 36, uh, God is making a prophecy in Ezekiel 36 and then into Ezekiel 37 that has a lot to do with God putting his spirit within his people and then being raised again, the spiritual resurrection that's going to happen. And he does mention there in Ezekiel uh, 36, starting in verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There's a lot more we could say about these prophecies, but I think it's helpful to acknowledge. I think what Jesus is promising here with being born of the spirit um, and the connections with Acts chapter 2, Joel chapter 2, Isaiah 2, Micah 4. There's a lot of promises that have to do with God pouring out his spirit that I think are fulfilled in the New Testament. And even in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, when Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. There's that regeneration there. Your sins are forgiven, you're reborn. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I do think what Ezekiel is talking about in 36 and 37 has to do with the messianic age that we're living in with Jesus giving the Holy Spirit to those who believe in him and respond with repentance and baptism and confession. But to press, to press the sprinkling of the water there and to say, Oh, it can't be water baptism. Baptism is a cleansing, but I don't think we need to be very careful with the prophetic language of Ezekiel 36. I think that the context of John 3 and the passages that we've talked about in the New Testament 
give us a stronger connection for Jesus's words than trying to press the imagery of Ezekiel 36. I, I think that's right. You and I were at a, a listening at that tent meeting just yesterday. And one of the points the fellow was making was he was using the analogy of the old temple and that before you went in, you had to wash in the basin, the ladder. Uh, and there's some similarity there, certainly, you know, but to go back and say everything has to be just like that, you wouldn't say that baptism needs to be in front of the temple. You wouldn't say it's only for Jewish Levites. You know, you, you, you can't apply all of that. But there, there's different types. And Peter makes the point in First Peter 3 that the flood was a type uh, of which baptism is the antitype. And it separated the righteous from the wicked. Um, uh, and, and so, yes, there's types in, in, in shadows in the old but when we get to the new covenant and we look for our instruction, we want to focus on those passages that clearly do that. And just a word about commentaries. Um, commentaries are very often written by people with certain denominational biases uh, or agenda. And so there's going to be certain texts that they don't want to say one thing. And so they're lo sometimes looking for it to be something else. Yeah, the context, I think, of John 3 really helps us there. Well, we're actually a little over time today. We want to thank everybody for their questions. Drew, uh, can you put that screen up? Um, one of the things that we're wanting to do is to not only connect with people through Facebook or through the Zoom app uh, online, but we would love if people are tuning in for the shows and hearing these questions. If you have more Bible questions, we'd love to talk with you more. So these are our phone numbers here and where we live. Um, so if you're tuning in through the Zoom app or through uh, Facebook today, please feel free to get in touch with us if you'd like to study the Bible further. Also, Stephen, I want to uh, put a plug in that we are now using podcasts for all of our recorded shows. Uh, a couple of people had asked us if we're going to do podcasts because they can't watch live. So this screen is also up for those of you who are watching us through the podcast, which is on demand, and you just have to click it's available through iTunes and uh, Google Play and a few other channels. So if you're watching us through the podcast, these numbers are up there for anybody to give us a call. If you have more questions or just want to contact us about anything. Uh, thanks for bringing that up, Stephen, because I did want to close that out with the screen this time. Well, thank you to everybody for joining today. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be back here Tuesday at 2. We'll try to catch some of the questions we didn't get to today. Uh, thanks again to everybody uh, for your comments and keep your Bible open. Uh, we want to stand alone on the Word of God. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you all. Bye. Bye.